Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, so a couple things to go over real fast. A um, little late getting this video done today. It's been a pretty hectic day. Uh, a lot of organizing and reorganizing and things going on in Sheltonville. Um, but I've still got the Avengers uh, backdrop up because I saw it on Thursday night. And if any of you guys have not seen it and are at all interested in the Marvel Universe, I cannot recommend it enough. Very powerful, very moving, kind of heartbreaking. Um, but there is another part coming. Uh, the story does not fully resolve with the, I mean, it, it, it ends, but there's clearly more happening uh, with this story. So I'm very hopeful that we will see some, uh, uh, some interesting things happen. I'm sure there'll be tons of conjecture about it over the year because it's coming out next May. Um, and I haven't done this in a little while, so I just want to kind of put a plug in. Um, I uh, did not get the little list. I'll probably do this next week of, of recent uh, folks who have signed up on Patreon to help support this channel. I want to give a shout out to all of those guys who have recently come on board. Thank you very much for your support of this channel. And uh, I want to say if anybody out there is enjoying being entertained and learning uh, from my content, then please do consider uh, supporting what I do because it is the support that I get from you guys, mainly through Patreon and also through individual um, PayPal donations that I am able to keep going and do what I do here. So that's my plug. And that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. B. Philip. There were yellow jacket wearing volunteer ministers in my community doing their thing, giving people flyers and pointing people towards their tent this weekend. One of them came up to me and I made a joke at the guy indicating that I had seen them running around the area all weekend, figuring they were a union or political group. He said, if there is something troubling you in life, there is something that can be done about it. This was his sales pitch and I guess I asked, what do you mean or what's this about? And the man abruptly replied, it's Scientology. I was surprised by his bluntness. No front group, just right into the main line. I was polite, but I walked away. I worry about seeing them again, about being pestered when I go by, because I frequent the area they were in regularly. I am not aware of any org in my city. I did not go into the tent. I did not give anyone my personal information. Do I have need to be worried about any future encounters? Okay, well, first off, no, you have no reason whatsoever to be afraid or fearful or, you know, freaking out at all about Scientology in your area or the volunteer ministers coming around. I don't know what city you're in. You didn't say in your question, so I can't say what the, you know, or even what country. But uh, here's what I can tell you about this. Um, the, the orgs, the city-level churches, have volunteer minister vans that they will take around and set up little booths at book expos or at uh, outdoor fairs and events or swap meets or that sort of thing. But there's also, uh, at the continental level, there's a big truck that they drive around the countryside, whether it's here in the United States or in the United Kingdom or around Europe, and they'll set up, they'll actually set up events to, uh, they'll book, you know, or reserve locations in city squares or at, um, at events or at, at convention centers, uh, you know, things like that, to, for a weekend or for a full week even. 
and they will do the whole pitch. And those are larger tents where they sell the books and they set up the assist tables to give people touch assists and nerve assists and try to directly get them involved with Scientology. It is a very upfront, in-your-face Scientology activity. The volunteer ministers were never really meant to be a front group. That's not really an accurate uh, description of the volunteer minister program. It is, the volunteer ministers are sort of the tip of the spear of Scientology in a dissemination uh, or promotion factor or, or, or manner. Um, you know, the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises doesn't, or WISE as they call it, doesn't identify itself as Scientology very straight away. The Association for Better Living and Education, or ABLE, which is the study technology or um, the Way to Happiness books and, and, and the Criminon program and the Narconon program, they do not identify themselves readily as Scientologists. Those are front groups. Volunteer ministers, that's not really what they're doing. They are loud and proud, in-your-face Scientology. In the UK, they even have the Jive Aces go around and play uh, music to attract people to come in there. And, they, and the, they're the Jive Aces, uh, I don't know if everybody knows this or not, but they're Sea Org members. Uh, and they, they travel around with the volunteer ministers. And, and when you're dealing with the big tent, the continental level volunteer minister uh, roadshow, we'll call it, uh, those are Sea Org members. So you're talking to, you know, very dedicated Scientologists who have drilled and practiced and trained to uh, just get Scientology well thought of. That's all they're really trying to do is they're trying to do something for people in the community. They're trying to offer the uh, education about Scientology. It's lower level stuff. It's, it's mainly innocuous, harmless, common sense based uh, principles or methods or techniques. Um, I mean, the touch assist and the nervous assist are not really very useful or very helpful. They're, you know, they're sort of like getting a little bit of a, of a back massage or something. But, um, but the study technology, you know, they, they, they concentrate on getting these little booklets that, uh, that break down Scientology into simple, easy to chew pieces uh, out to the public and they try to uh, create a good name for Scientology. That's really what that's all about. They're not really, I mean, they'll sell books and they will collect identities, but if they just see you and have a conversation with you, there's nothing, there's nothing to be freaked out about about that. They're not going to note down your license plate or come following you, or you know, they're going to follow you around or anything like that. So I don't think there's really any need to be concerned or overly concerned about them. Um, you know, they'll they'll probably only be in town for a little while. Uh, because that's the nature of the tours that they do. They go around from city to city to city. Uh, and that's what I can tell you about that. I hope that's, hope that's helpful. Turd Ferguson. Watching the Zuckerberg hearing, and I was curious as to your thoughts on the matter. Western social media has an observable political bias. And while your personal politics may align with this bias, your cult awareness content could be placed in the ever-increasing and nebulous umbrella of what they consider hate speech. Does this concern you? Given Zuckerberg's testimony and the recent political comments by Jack Dorsey and the value you place on critical thought and the vigorous exchange of ideas, do you feel any obligation to call attention to what many see as an organized effort to obstruct certain speech on these platforms? Thanks for the question. And it, this is a very, very deep well. And I am really only going to dip my toe in, the, in it 
uh, in answering this question here on my Q&A. I could do a whole podcast on this. And actually, while I was uh, thinking about this, uh, I, I've thought about doing that. So let's see my thoughts on this. Uh, I was not very impressed by Congress's grilling of Zuckerberg. It was not very impressive. I mean, these, these old guys in the Senate clearly don't understand social media. Uh, the questions they were asking him about, for example, how does Facebook make money? I mean, how do you not know that? It, you know, through advertisements. That, 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 that is the business model. <laughs> like, how, how is this a valid question to be asking Zuckerberg? Clearly, these guys are, are a little clueless. So I wasn't really very impressed. Uh, now, as far as the point you're making, though, because you're not, you know, the Zuckerberg testimony is, uh, is whatever, but the point you're making about free speech, uh, let's see, it's a complicated issue. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of the social media platforms are privately owned companies. They do, the, the First Amendment doesn't really apply. I mean, freedom of speech is a principle that we have based on our Bill of Rights. So the government cannot step in and interfere with your right to say whatever it is you want to say. You want to go stand on a street corner and read from the satanic verses or from, you know, the Bible or from um, Mein Kampf, you can do that. The government can't come and put a muzzle on you and tell you you can't say those words. That's the First Amendment. On a private platform, the people who own that platform have control of it. So if they don't want certain content put on their platform, they have a right to curb or censor or stop that, the, you know, the vocalization or writing of those ideas. They don't have to give anybody a platform. That's not a right that you have on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any other social media platform. So it's important to differentiate that because people make these things out to be free speech issues. And it's not a free speech issue because it has nothing to do with government regulation or interference. As I understand it and as I'm talking about this in terms of private corporations controlling these platforms. Now, that being said, we would like a vigorous exchange of ideas on all social media platforms. This is the United States where it's sort of tradition to have freedom of speech. Um, we, you know, take offense or, you know, or, or feel, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, but uh, upset when, <laughs> when somebody says, hey, you can't say that here or we're going we're gonna to censor that here. Uh, this has also happened on YouTube, and yes, I have been concerned about it. Some of my videos have been demonetized because the content is atheist-oriented or has to do with child abuse. That is a, a, just a point that I have educated about because Scientology and destructive cults are abusive groups, and they abuse children and they abuse women sexually, emotionally, psychologically, and I talk about that. I talk about it not from the point of supporting or endorsing that kind of behavior, but on educating about it. And because I do, YouTube deems some of that content now advertiser unfriendly. Well, I don't happen to think that that's the case, and I've been a little pissed, as I have expressed sometimes here, about some of my videos being demonetized. Um, other videos that I've put up 
have uh, been demonetized and then I've asked for a review and then they get re-monetized and it's okay. Uh, the majority of cases that's been the case, but there are a number where that, that was not the case. And I understand. I understand that as a content creator on YouTube, I don't get to have a say in what YouTube will or won't deem advertiser friendly. It's not my call. So I have to put up with it. I can't sue them. I'm not going to take YouTube to court or write nasty letters or try to, you know, uh, create some kind of boycott YouTube or something uh, because they are giving me a platform to speak and to get my ideas out there. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that I can monetize some of my videos. And the fact that they changed the rules of the game halfway along the line did piss me off. But at the same time, I understand that it's their right to do that because YouTube is part of Google now and Google has a business model and they're trying to accomplish different things with YouTube now than they were when they started. So I, as a content creator, have to go along with that and deal with their terms of service that I agree to when I, when I agree to be a content creator. If I don't like it, I can go find another platform where I won't be censored or I won't be uh, you know, cut off for some reason uh, because of the content, but I also won't necessarily be monetized on those other platforms either. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a, this balancing act. Ultimately, uh, if somebody is deplatformed on YouTube or Facebook or any of these other platforms, um, you can go write a book, you can go give lectures, you can go speak in a park, you can go get a soapbox and, and start talking. I mean, there's nobody stopping you from communicating your ideas. They're just limiting what platforms you can use to express those ideas. I agree with some of the calls that are made. I disagree with other calls that are made. I would not necessarily agree, for example, that Facebook is a left-leaning platform and always has been because that was actually the problem they're sort of trying to solve by, by becoming, you know, censoring of, of content. They were hosting all kinds of right-wing, uh, very alt-right content, and some of it has words and ideas that are being expressed that are rather controversial to say the least. And I don't know that anybody has a right to be, you know, be given a platform through YouTube or through Facebook or as I've, as I've gone over here. So that's not the right you have with free speech, you see. Um, so, you know, you don't necessarily have to like it, but that's, that's the world that we live in. And uh, I have um, dealt with that on my channel accordingly. I'm still going to, I've made the decision that some of my content isn't going to be monetized and there's not much I can do about it, but I'm going to keep talking because they're still giving me a platform to do it on. Uh, when it comes to, you know, my opinions about hate speech, I know it's very subjective. Some people, you know, some people's truth is other people's hate speech and vice versa. But I think it's pretty clear that when you're posting content on any platform, in any medium, that incites violence towards others, uh, that attempts to demean a class of people in such a way as to create, truly create hate and, and divisiveness and, uh, and, and violence towards that group. Then, then there probably should be some censoring going on. 
because uh, that's not a world I want to live in where free speech is represented by who can rile people up the most. Also, when you're when you're in a, a frame of mind that you want to incite violence against other people, um, I've found by experience, not, not theoretically, but very practically, that such people are very, very open to lying through their teeth. Uh, they're very, very selective facts and, and reasoning uh, in, in cre you know, in making their points. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not really big on on uh, false information being spread around. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I don't support that idea. I think facts matter, and I think it's important to tell the truth. Uh, every anybody can make a mistake. I've made mistakes. I have said things on my channel over all the videos that I've made that were wrong, but I didn't do it intentionally. I didn't do it in an effort to deceive or to try to get you guys to you know to twist your thinking in some fashion so you'd agree with me. I've always done the best job I can to be as open and honest as, as, as I know how to be and to correct my mistakes when I've made them. Um, you know, that's, that's a different thing from having differing opinions about things. That's not a matter of, you know, right or wrong all the time, although the information the opinions are based on can be right or wrong. And that's, that's been my struggle when I, when I deal with people who have differing opinions from me as I try to you know, check their facts and make sure the facts are straight and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm digressing right now. Like I said, this is a big, big, deep well. There's a lot of layers to it. There's a lot to talk about. Um, I hope what I said here gives some idea of where I'm coming from with this. And uh, I think the most important point is differentiating what the First Amendment really means and how it, how it really applies in America versus how it's been sort of, mm, I don't want to say corrupted, but definitely altered <laughs> to make points uh, that, that aren't really valid when it comes to free speech on, on uh, social media platforms. So there you go. The Mad Matster. Do you think some free zone Scientologists see the OT3 Xenu narrative as metaphor instead of actual fact, like liberal Christians believe about a lot of the Old Testament? Also, do you think some in the church or free zone don't buy the becoming sick part about hearing the story and only if you're audited on it? Okay, Madster, um, I'm really not sure. I haven't talked to lots and lots of independent Scientologists or people who are in the free zone. So what, what I do know is that independent Scientologists are very independent thinkers when it comes to Scientology. And by that I mean that they pick and choose and cherry pick the parts that they want, uh, the parts they agree with, and they reject the rest. So each individual independent Scientologist has their own views, and some of them are radically different from a lot of what Hubbard said, whereas others try to toe the line and do exactly what Hubbard said. So you get a spectrum in the independent movement. Uh, it's, it's not one single cohesive body of people. It's a bunch of individuals scattered all over the world doing what they think is Scientology because they think that whatever it is that they're doing that they've cherry-picked from the materials is what makes them feel good. And, you know, to the degree that they, are, that they feel good about it, fine, I don't really care. Um, I think it's a little silly to call what they're doing Scientology, though, because uh, it's not. 
we, you know, Scientology is a cohesive whole. It is a body of work that, is, that was written and developed by L. Ron Hubbard, and he made it very clear, he wrote it right into the DNA of the materials, that it's all or nothing, and it's Hubbard's way or the highway. And I, I just find it kind of amusing, really, that, that people will go off and, and, and cherry-pick their own bits and pieces and call it Scientology because Hubbard himself would just roll over in his grave and, and rolled over, you know, uh, he, he got really pissed at people doing that when he was alive. And he ordered that those people be destroyed and ruined utterly uh, and fair-gamed, you know, out of existence. So... I don't really get the loyalty. I, I really don't. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now, as far as answering your question, now that I've said all that about independent Scientology, as far as uh, the Xenu narrative goes, I think you'll find a variety of answers to this amongst the independent Scientologists. I think some do believe it, literally, because that's how you're supposed to believe it. L. Ron Hubbard absolutely believed in the literalness of OT3. He, di he, didn't, he didn't say this was metaphor. He wasn't talking in symbology. This is historic fact as far as he's concerned, and he made no bones about that. So uh, if some people need to, you know, creak, creak that around to, oh, well, he was just being symbolic about this, well, th that just goes right along with the cherry-pick and choose attitude of independent Scientologists. So, you know, whatever. I. That's, that's kind of how they, they roll with it. Same with the whole getting sick thing. I have, I have heard some independent Scientologists go, oh, I knew that was bullshit from the get-go. I didn't believe any of that. To, you know, other people going, yeah, no, that's, that's for real. You don't, you don't want to screw around with these materials because they're dangerous and they'll mess you up. So, you know, uh, most of them, I think, fall into the... Uh, I, I think most of them, I'd, I'd feel secure in saying that, that I think the majority of independent Scientologists believe that, the, that Hubbard was making shit up when he said that you're going to get sick and die if you read this stuff or, or try to audit it on yourself before you're ready. Uh, I think they kind of went, mm, because the physical evidence <laughs> is that lots of people have read this, lots of people have audited it, and no one died ever. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty, didn't really work out in the real world that that's, uh, that that result would happen. So I think most of them have kind of blown that part of it off. All right, there you go. Anne Green. I'm curious about how Scientology dealt with 9-11. How did you find out about the event? Was there any immediate impact to you, to the Sea Organization? Did you get some sort of statement or instructions from the higher organizations or even Miscavige? I imagine that it would have been near impossible to keep everyone in the dark about it considering the volume of the impact even on the smallest segments of society. No amount of fingers in your ears or blindfolds to media would have been very effective, I imagine. Okay, good question. And no, there was no attempt to try to shield Scientologists or Sea Org members from 9-11. In fact, if anything, our, our noses were rubbed in it over and over and over again. Uh, the day it happened, David Miscavige wrote an issue that was distributed to all Scientologists, and it was called Wake Up Call. And the whole point, what he did was he tried to take the, the tragedy of 9-11 and turn it into a, a, a momentum or, a, or try to create a drive 
to get all Sea Org members and Scientology staff members to get even busier and work harder and faster to get Scientology out into the world. And as a result of 9-11, there were changes made within Scientology's structure and some of its strategic planning. The, um, in fact, some, you could even uh, think that some of the ideal org strategy, the whole thing about making new buildings and renovating them and all that, um, at least some of the way that that ideal org strategy was, was communicated to us and, and told to us was, um, was that we needed to get these orgs ideal because they needed to create these field groups and, and, and front groups and, and more orgs out into the field, right? Every org was supposed to be a sort of uh, Scientology generation plant for its area, and it was supposed to create new groups and things and, and spread Scientology. And that, start, that message really started getting ramped up after 9-11. Uh, there was the, the issue where Miscavige talked about this, said that every Scientologist needs to step up and either be, uh, you know, join the team, in other words, become a staff member, and if you can't do that, then you need to, uh, you know, get on service more, get full-time on service, do your, you know, do your training, do your auditing, and get going now, 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 let's go. And of course, that momentum only lasted for a little while. <laughs> before everybody was kind of like, okay, now we're back into the daily grind. And then, you know, it would, re it would get pushed again and we'd get surges of, of this from this uh, Inspector General Network Bulletin that, that uh, Miscavige wrote. IG Network Bulletin 44, I think it was. So that was the, re that was the response to it. I personally learned about 9-11 that morning. I was in Los Angeles and I got up and, and went into the shower and then uh, as I was coming out of the shower somebody was like, dude, did you just hear what happened? And I was like, yeah, no, I didn't, hadn't heard anything. And they were like, yeah, then they, then they told me what happened and I was like, wow, that sounds awful. And then as I went downstairs and then we, you know, heard the news and there was, there were TV monitors uh, rolled out and we actually watched the news. That was one of the only times, the whole, in all the years that I was in the Sea Org, where the news was set up for us to watch, to see what was going on, because it was such a big deal. So it was kind of the opposite of trying to hide it. They were trying to push our faces in it, because it was um, a, a, a wake-up call for us. You know, when you're, when you're working to save mankind, when that's the stated purpose of your daily, day-to-day -day activity, and something like that happens, of course that would be used by the leadership, or certainly should be, to, you know, gen up donations and, uh, and, and responsibility and duty and let's go and, and let's, let's make Scientology happen because we got to clear this planet before it destroys itself. So that was the whole attitude about 9-11. Andrew McAuliffe. Where slash when, in your journey out of Scientology, did you realize the importance of the falsifiability of your beliefs about objective reality? What was the immediate result of that realization for you? I think it was around um, August or September of 2013, the year that I uh, sort of realized that Scientology was not everything I thought that it had been. I'd gone down the internet rabbit hole and then I was learning about critical thinking and uh, this, this new idea called skepticism. 
And that was when I learned about certain, uh, that's when I start, that was when I was first exposed to the concept of logical fallacies and rhetoric and how does this stuff actually work. Uh, and that was when I learned about, uh, or relearned, I should say, about scientific method and the, and the process. And that was where the falsifiability of information first kind of entered my uh, sphere of thinking as a, as a thing. I mean, I'd, I'd known about evidence-based reasoning and stuff before this, obviously. I mean, I went to school just like everybody else. But, um, but the importance of it and the, the idea that this applied to something like Scientology and that you could, you know, if you didn't have evidence for something, then maybe the claims you were making weren't really worth so much. So when that started to dawn on me and I started restructuring my thinking and, and started adopting critical thinking as a more you know, reasoned line of approach to, to how I should think about things, the immediate effects of that were to really get me thinking more critically about the claims of Scientology. Um, that was, I think, when it first started dawning on me that the idea of a spiritual existence might not be so valid as I had thought that it was. I mean, even coming out of Scientology, I mean, you don't, it's not the sort of, that's not the kind of belief that you just turn on and off. You know, I, I had dedicated my whole life to this idea of an immortal spiritual existence. So it was not a belief that I was going to let go of very easily. But I would say that this idea of falsifiability of evidence or, or of information was sort of the first, you know, click of the key turning that would eventually open the door to me, you know, kind of throwing some of those beliefs out the door and turning them into what I've now described as, as hopes, not beliefs, right? I, I can't, I don't have a strong enough idea of a spiritual existence to say I believe it. It's just something I kind of hope would be real and, and maybe at some point I'll have evidence of that. So I think that was the immediate effect that it had on me. And of course that led to many, many, many more effects as I thought about it more and more and I started applying that more and more and read more about critical thinking and science. The lightning and the thunder tell us it is time for flash answers. Ben Asselstein. When Scientology gives you vitamins, how do you know the pills are what they say they are? Are they commercial, off-the-shelf brands, or are they some sort of special Sea Org-generated pill? This cracked me up. Uh, you know, Scientology produces a lot of things in-house, but vitamins are not one of those things. They just buy them off the shelf. There is a couple, there have been a couple Scientologists who have created companies that make vitamins, but you know, they're regulated by the FDA and stuff. They're, they're, they're legit vitamins. They're not produced in-house. Ah, indeed. In YouTube videos at FLAG, some of the Sea Org members are wearing blue and some are in gold. Why do they have different colored uniforms at FLAG? The FLAG land base has probably something on the order of a thousand plus Sea Org members there, and maybe less at this point, but 
a lot of people, hundreds of them for sure. These are divided into various sub-organizations. It's not all just one big base. It's got a Commodore's Messenger org, it has an Estates org, it has a Service org, it has... And the Service org is divided up into the Advanced org and the Regular org and the... And, you know, there's just all these different sub-organizations. And these various different units have different uniforms to designate who's working where. So that's why you see different colored uniforms on staff at, at FLAG. Robert Portman. Do you know of any other modern-day cults besides Scientology that are not Christian-based? Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, and even Heaven's Gate all have Christian foundations while Scientology does not. How unique are they in this fashion? Well, they're not very unique at all. I, I, I've said many, many times that destructive cults come in all brands and shapes and sizes and, and are not all even religious in nature. Uh, you, you can't have any group or even a one-on-one -on -one relationship become a destructive cult or, or, or start you know, operating in that kind of a relationship. So there have been martial arts groups that have been destructive cults, and this is not an uncommon thing in the world of martial arts, by the way. There's, I heard of an acting class in New York that behaved like a destructive cult because the guy, the acting coach, was using his students for sexual favors and was controlling their lives uh, in a very culty fashion. I mean, this wasn't just he was having sex with one or two of his students. He had this going on for years, and these students were not getting work, and he would not let them out of the group, and it became a very master-servant relationship with these, with these people. So this can happen in any part of life. That's something I keep trying to stress. So. Uh, it is not, not Christian-based at all. There, a, a vast majority of, re, of cults have nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, and, and it would, and it's, it, so it's kind of wrong framing to think of destructive cults that way. The way to look at them is more along the lines of um, the checklist that uh, Jan Yalalich has put together with Michael Angioni, which I have on my website. Uh, so you can look at that checklist there. Uh, and the idea that it is a an abusive relationship between a leader and follower and followers, okay, or a follower or followers. So that would be the that would be a more correct way of looking at it than it's a structured religious belief system because that's not that's very limiting to what a destructive cult actually is. Okay, everybody. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gabber here. Uh, again, leave any uh, comments, questions, or feedback in the comment section below. I will eventually see all of it. Thanks for coming around, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.